This podcast is brought to you by Eisner Award-winning comic book store, Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska. And listeners like you, head to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click donate or check us out at Patreon backslash TwoHeadedNerd. Our story this week picks up where we left off last week. Broadcasting from the Ziggurat in Omaha, it's deep below the metro area. It's super creepy, and it's our pleasure to welcome you to episode 628 of the Two-Headed Nerd comic book podcast. I will be your head number one for the duration. My name is Matt Bond. And of course, I'm the internet's Joe Patrick, and while I'm head number two, we all know who you tune in to hear. That's right, it's me. Today on the show, in case you didn't get that little subtle thing, it's, it's me. We all know. Thanks. Today I, on the show, I it's wrote not, that part, folks. It's there you go. Not Matt. It's not Matt. It's me. Today on the show, we are reviewing new comics from Wednesdays, July 14th and July 21st. That's today. After that, we've got must read comic picks for next Wednesday, and the comic pushers are back to talk about some Moon Knight stories that are sure to make you an addict. So, Strap in, because this knockoff Batwing is about to hit some turbulence. It's review time in the Ziggurat! Look, I'll have you know, it's called the Mooncopter, and I have thoughts about the Mooncopter, which I will address when we get to it. <laughs> All right. I don't think it's technically a copter, though. There's no rotor. Yeah, listen, I said I'd get to it. <laughs> okay. This episode's review pile features British ninjas, barbaric bodybuilders, Sinister Sixes, and old-ass Superman Matt. It's your turn to kick off the reviews. My first review this week goes to Beyond the Breach. Number one, it's from Aftershock. This is written by Ed Brisson with art by Damien Cucciero. A young woman burned by a cheating boyfriend while her mother was dying of cancer. Total dick. Slept with her sister. Yeah, right. Heads to Northern California for a road trip, but after a sudden car accident, she finds herself in familiar surroundings, but chased by otherworldly creatures. For In some, theory, you would assume that the sister's mom is also dying. Yeah, I mean, yes, theoretically, right? I, <laughs> I mean, right. I, I mean, like, like family, tie, family ties get weird, but it's probably the same mother. Not important, though. Brisson's script wastes no time introducing the reader to Vanessa and her situation as she's screaming at her phone while it receives texts from her cheating ex-boyfriend. The action starts literally on the third page, and it does not let up. Cucciero is an artist I first met on Marvel's Old Man Logan series, and his art continues to get better every time I see him. There's some very cool Lovecraftian creature designs in this book, and a really good sense of motion to each panel. Brisson's script helps reinforce Vanessa's desperation and confusion, and leaves the reader just as confused but also invested in her story, thanks to some strong personality moments mixed into the action. This was a fun mix of Lovecraftian horror and Stephen King's The Mist with a well-written female lead. I'm giving this a buy it. Yes, I really liked this. I liked this a lot. It's 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 very very much. Uh, I get them confused. It's it's not the fog. It's the mist, right? The mist. The fog yeah, was the one with uh, the pirate ghosts. Okay, yeah. So not the fog. Not the fog. <laughs> definitely. Now I do love the fog, but that was a uh, John Carpenter. Uh, yeah, but no serious mist vibes from this. The art is tremendous. Uh. Look, I'm going to go, I'm going to say this and maybe you will not, maybe it will end up not being the case, but I was reading this issue and something happens at the very end 
that I'm not going to spoil. It's not maybe it's probably not a huge thing, but I still don't want to spoil it. But don't I'm like, spoil. oh, don't spoil it. I know you're I know where you're going. Don't do it. I was just like, oh, that's not going to happen. And then it totally happened. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, it's this was a ton of fun. It's a buy it from me. Uh, Ed Brisson is a writer that is kind of up and down for me, but I really liked this a lot. I think Ed, we're finding Ed Brisson to be another one of those guys that plays really well in his own sandbox. In his own sandbox. You yep. know what I mean? Yep. Exactly right. The art. The art was yeah. very good. Cuchero, man. That guy's fantastic. Speaking of excellent art. Ninjak number one from Valiant. Veteran creators Jeff Parker and Javier Polito combine their formidable talents to bring back Valiant's stylish British ninja super spy. Why is Britain's premier secret agent a ninja? Because it's awesome. Stop asking stupid questions. <laughs> Parker makes a pretty familiar spy thriller plot device. The always coveted list of undercover agent identities. The center of the story, but it's a quick way to keep Ninjak connected with quote-unquote, Mina, the suddenly outed agent that's been tailing him. We're introduced to the title character as he thwarts the ripped-from-the-headlines attempted murder of a Turkish journalist. And the way Parker and Polito give us everything you need to know about the character as he dispatches the villains is a delight. It's so good. I really can't say enough about how unbelievable Javier Polito's art is in this issue. He's an absolute master of form and storytelling and his deceptively sparse drawing style uses simple shapes and negative space to turn every panel into a complete work of art. Like it's easy to look at this and go, there's not even that many lines. Look, this is a child's art. No, it's an amazing use of the tools of, of the trade. It's wonderful. His mastery of color also on full display with scenes that are cast in similar shades to suit the setting. Uh, for example, uh, the scene with the journalist, it's in Istanbul. And so, you know, it's hot. It's the Middle East. It's hot. And so it's all like yellows and golds, yeah, right? Yeah. And then there's this, these pops of the yellow jack signature purple that draw your eye where it needs to go. Yeah. And it's so effective. It's so sexy. Ninjack number one is an absolute blast. It mixes familiar spy tropes with costumed action. It's a huge Bye. So Ninjak is a ninja because he was raised in Asia by his father, who was an MI6 spy who was killed by ninjas. He went to a rival ninja clan and said, teach me to be a ninja. I want to go kill the guy that killed my dad. There you go. That sounds like the origin of Snake Eyes. Uh, well, I, I don't think we're going to get that this weekend in the movie. So <laughs> I don't oh, know. Was that out this weekend? Yeah. Oh, boy. And it looks terrible. Ninjak, oh. way cooler. This book was amazing. Javier Polito was a really strange choice. If you look at all the other artists that have worked on Ninjak, they're all kind of very traditional, sort of 90s action packed yeah. school I mean, of Jim Lee. Kind of the thing of, that's you know? kind of the thing about Ninjak is every time, every time there's been a Valiant reboot, I say every time as though there's been more than two. There there's, was the one in the 90s. There's been a few like, actually uh, recently. So. <laughs> no, I mean like an actual reboot of Valiant. Right, right, right. right. Like, so there was the acclaim one in the 90s mm -hmm. that gave us Quantum and Woody and, and that kind of stuff. That Ninjak was totally different than the Valiant Ninjak of the original run. Oh, for he sure. Was like a, he was like a teenager who like turned into a video game character. It was weird. But I'm just saying the look of the book has always yeah, been no, kind this, of a certain uh, yeah, way. Yeah, this, this, um, Javier Polito is an interesting choice. That oh, said, he's amazing. And I think it's very cool to tell this kind of story. And it just shows the kind of chances that Valiant is willing to take. I hope it pays off for them. But I can also see a lot of people looking at a guy 
like Javier Polito and thinking of him like a Jeff Lemire going, that's not for me. That's garbage. Not even giving it a chance because it is different. It's very different. I love him and he is a genius and you need to check this book out. It's a huge buy. Let's jump over to Dark Horse for Savage Hearts. Number one, it's written by Aubrey Citizen with art by Jed Doherty, a massive female barbarian. I mean, massive. She is rippling muscles. She, she ripped. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she shredded. Leads two hapless clients through a wild jungle, but little did she know, love was in the air, at least for the horned jungle satyr that spots her and her group and offers to be their guide while hitting on her incessantly. Meanwhile, an evil wizard and his army of bird servants have stolen a sacred artifact that will, of course, give said wizard limitless power to take over the realm. This is another offering in the self-aware, tongue-in-cheek, fantasy, humor, comic genre. Whew, that's a mouthful, but it's also a thing. And Citizen's plot yeah. and dialogue do a really nice job keeping the script lighthearted, cute, and occasionally funny. I just recently reviewed a similar comic called Barbaric, and I think this fits in that same genre, although I would say Barbaric probably hit the mark a little better. Doherty has a wild art style that is at sometimes very detailed, almost school of Arthur Adams, and then comically cartoony, almost Sergio Aragones. You know who it really reminded me of? Steve Pugh. Yeah. Okay. I'll give you that. Definitely. The book looks really good. The humor was quite clever. If you're looking for fantasy with a D&D feel that doesn't take itself too seriously, Savage Hearts is a solid read with great art. I'm giving this a buy it. You know, I thought it was okay. I, I thought the art was great. It was really I good. I, yeah. I really enjoyed Doherty's art. Um, the comic itself, and I think Aubrey Citizen is a good writer. You know, I've, you know, we reviewed Beef Bros a while back. Right. And I remember liking it a little more than you did. And I think we're just kind of flip-flopped here. Like, I did not think it was that funny. I, I thought it was cute, uh, and I thought that it was uh, clever. Like, I like the setup of it, you know, and I have no problems with any of that. But, like, I, I like the idea of the uh, the satyr character, whose name I'm forgetting, like, instantly falling in love with the barbarian woman. And, and, he, and she he just, kept, like, just dropping just these ridiculous that. names for her. He's like, yeah, she has, like, right, yeah, like, all these, like, <laughs> turtle dove. Like, like, my gargantuan ginger snap. <laughs> or, yeah, you know, my my weird fantasy name, Blood Grub, you know, it's yeah. like... Uh, <laughs> my bulging uh, Blood Grub, I believe. Right, yeah, it's like... Uh, and, like, so that, that, like, it was cute and everything, but I feel like it just didn't land, like, the jokes didn't really land for me. I like the stuff with the duo that she was, like, leading, too, where, like, every time they were in danger, they're like, what should we do? And it was, like, this D&D &D moment where one of them would be like, I think we should do this. The other would be like, well, maybe we could talk to him. We're like, let's vote on it. And they both vote for their same thing. Like, oh, curses. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah you know? exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, okay. So I'm going to give this a skim it because that was my first, my first thought was that like, it's okay. You know, it's not, it's not necessarily my cup of tea, but I see the merit in it. Um, I do really love the art, but I totally agree. Like barbaric, it pushed all of those buttons for me. And I, yeah. and I don't just think it's because of the violence or the cursing. I don't think Barbaric is going for that sort of D&D &D real play kind of feel. Yeah, and maybe that's where it's like, okay, I don't really need it to lean that heavily into those tropes. This like, definitely I felt like Aubrey Sitterson and friends playing Dungeons and Dragons. Sure. Yeah, I mean, and maybe that's just, I wasn't looking at it the right way, but my initial thought was a skim it, and I'm going to stick with that. 
I did. I did love the art, and it's well written. It's just I didn't think it was as cute as it was trying to be. That's fair. Our last review from last week is Sinister War number one from Marvel Comics. Did it, did we know this was a thing that was happening? I mean, <laughs> kind of. It I don't sure know. Seems it's like the, it just showed next, up. It's, it's the last. <laughs> Who can keep track? It's it's one. Of, it's a it's a big event of Nick Spencer's Spider Man run, which is coming to an end. It kicks off in this issue, except it kind of doesn't. Right? <laughs> Events that have been building in the main title for a while now finally come to a head. So as first issues go. Don't expect to understand what's happening if you're not up to date on your prerequisite reading, which also includes the Mary Jane solo series from last year (laughs) that I hated. That said, it isn't too hard to follow thanks to a brief recap page and some fairly straightforward superhero storytelling. As Spidey deals with attacks from multiple teams of his greatest and also lamest villains, Dr. Strange is off dealing with Mephisto in a subplot Taylor made to get a rise out of any fanboys that have been holding a grudge about one more day for the past decade. Uh-huh. And it's a perfect place for it, too. We all saw this coming. It was naturally building to this, right? Well, I think he has been hinting at... Really? I, he has been hinting at this Mary Jane marriage stuff for a long time. He's been hinting that Peter was going to propose again. No, 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 no. They, they, it's been a thing in Spencer's run. Really? Definitely. Okay. I've, I've heard. Yes. I take that back. Cause I, I haven't been there then. I'm not. Yeah. Right. No, I've heard he's definitely been dancing around the whole like Mephisto deal thing. All right. So that criticism of mine doesn't count. Take that back. Revoked. Uh, art wise. I will always go to bat for Mark Begley for better or for worse, but the presence of multiple inkers does not do his work any favors here. Uh, he's at his best drawing Spidey and his classic foes in action, but there are some newer additions like the bug-loving Kindred that looked really intimidating under uh, Ryan Otley and, or Patrick Gleason. Yeah. Otley made him off as totally silly in this comic. Otley made that character look scary. As much as I don't care for it, Otley made the character yeah. look scary. Like, Mark there's a scene- Bagley cannot yeah. draw this character. <laughs> well, he's like, and he's like super thin and, wi- and I'm like, that guy is not scary. That guy is not scary looking. No. Like, why is he a threat to Spider-Man? He kind of looks like a kid. <laughs> yeah. Like a little kid. Uh, so, you know, I don't know. Ultimately, Sinister War is a pretty fun, classic superhero action story that is addressing some pretty controversial storylines in a way that did intrigue me. But it probably would have had more impact if I'd been up to date on Spider-Man. I'm giving it a strong skim it. Uh, because it's a it's a four part event and it's weaving in throughout the issues of the main titles. Yeah, I just. This felt haphazard to me. I don't know how else to explain it other than Nick Spencer is getting ready to end his run. And I, I, I can't remember who had this quote, but it was like a Hollywood thing. And they were like, or actually, I think it was a sports thing. And they were saying, like, look, they're only really going to remember the last thing you did. You're going to be judged by the last thing you did because that's going to be the last thing on their memory. So he's like, all right, I'm going to fix some stuff that I feel is broken and I'm going to bring back all these dead guys that I killed and I'm going to do it all right here and it's all happening. Oh, and Stegron's there. You know, like what is going yeah, on? Right. <laughs> like, and don't get me wrong. Like I love a, I love an obscure Spidey villain. Give sure. me Hydro Man. Give sure. me Boomerang all day long. I don't, I love them. This just felt weird, man. It just felt weird to me. And I, I don't know. I don't think Bagley's art looked good here. I, and I think he, you're right. Multiple inkers didn't help, but I haven't thought Bagley's artists look good for a while either. And I love Mark Bagley. And I'm with you. Your, that is your right. He is a guy that was great when he was great. And I don't necessarily know that he's great anymore. I've given this a skim it. 
I'm not going to revisit it. I don't really want to talk about it anymore. <laughs> tell you the truth. I feel bad when I start like bagging on like guys like Mark Bagley because they have such a special place in my heart. It, it's just tough. You know, it's tough. Yeah. I mean, and as far as like the, as far as the writing goes, the, the art is a separate thing, but as far as the writing goes, like I will, I will fully admit I am not up to speed on Spencer Spider-Man. And this might not be the book to recommend to somebody that wants to give Spider-Man Definitely a Definitely not. Definitely not. Let's jump to this week, the 21st, and Superman and the Authority, number one from DC. It's written by Grant Morrison with art by Michael Jannon. Superman is losing his powers, you know, just like in the regular Superman books. And he's reflecting on his past failings, like that time he didn't save JFK from assassination. Remember that in Silver Age? That was crazy. I have a question about that scene in particular. Okay. Did it imply that he was too busy playing catch with the astronauts on the moon? Sure what it looked like to me. Which, I mean, I guess that means they got to the moon early? I don't know. Because they were saying he was, JFK was telling him, I want to put a man on Mars by the end of 1969 or something. So, yeah, yeah. I don't know. But before Superman checks out, it's time to call in some backup to ensure that the world is a better place without soups around. So who do you call? Manchester Black, of course. Right, obviously. The washed up drunk super telepath kinetic to form a new authority team in what I guess is the regular DC continuity. Of course, Lex Luthor. Well, we don't know. We'll get to that. Of course, Lex Luthor and the Legion of Doom are lurking and Lex knows a secret about not only Superman, but also Kryptonite that could spell certain doom for the man of steel. Now, Joe and I talked about this at length as to where this is taking place. And as a spoiler alert, this Superman is old. This Superman one has gray hair Two, He's got gray hair. He's not wearing a cape anymore. He's dressed like Tom strong. (laughs) That's all I can see when I look at the kingdom come, uh, kind of S right black. So I believe that there are a lot of hints here that are saying, this is a different universal Superman. This is something in the multiverse possibly, but there's nothing that says, you know, earth, five or earth whatever They're no just, it doesn't and, happen and, but you know what that's also fine for an issue number one like i don't need to know everything right off the bat i agree but we also got a solicit that says this is spinning out of continuity that's taking place in philip kennedy johnson's action comics that's not what the solicit says well, that's what they initially sent out to ign and several other review sites I dccomics.com <laughs> says verbatim not well not verbatim because i don't have it called up but dccomics.com actually says that it will set up future events not that it's spinning out of past events we can both admit we were confused as hell after we we were confused as hell confused as hell because now it's the infinite frontier it is and that's the other thing i i've fallen behind a bit on the philip kennedy johnson stuff i i burned through some of it today nothing like this has happened and this is a massive tone shift for Superman. I like the message with soups looking to make sure that there's others to carry on the good work of saving humanity, yada, yada, yada. But I'm not sure where the tone came from with him talking about the justice league failing because they were so certain they were winning. They didn't have to try and stuff like Morrison's script is clever and it's great to see him writing Superman again. And this is very interesting, but it sure feels like a black label book that may have been shoved into continuity or perhaps 
a regular Superman story in a different multiversal Earth. We just don't have any hints to that. And that is unless the Infinite Frontier is just blowing everything apart. And I don't know that yet either. Janin is amazing on pencils, as usual. And I hate that I spent the whole review asking what the fuck. But I have to ask, what the fuck? And they could have solved that really, really easily. I'm giving this book a buy it because it's Grant Morrison. And he's writing a very good and poignant Superman story. But it is nowhere near the Superman we currently have. And to fix that, all you got to do is open page one and go, Earth, Schwifty, you know, and and we've we've argued about that. (laughs) We've argued about that. Like, we're talking about a limited series, right? This is a four issue series. I get it. I don't need them. I don't need Grant Morrison to say, this is exactly what's happening. Page one. Here's the story. I don't need that either. And we still wouldn't know that. But if they told us where it took place, then we can go, okay, that's why the authority looks isn't around or looks like this or could be this or whatever. Well, or it's Superman not, uh, not going to be the authority that we recognize. It's going to be like Midnighter will be there. Apollo exactly. might be there, but, but it's also going to be like Natasha Irons. But let us know that. Just let yeah. us know that there's something different going on. I here. mean, they're on the cover because so. that's not the plot. That's not the, the plot is the being cover, developed. Though. You know what I mean? But like we were so confused as to where the hell this was. Yes, I, I agree. I was confused because I was confused because I assumed that it took place in the present day mainline DCU that is clearly not the case. No. Whether that means it takes place in the future or on an alternate earth, time will tell. I'm willing to give Grant Morrison the 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 rope to explain it to me, especially since it's a limited run. There uh, there's been a lot of like a, there was a lot of um not outrage, but like when the book was announced, Superman and the Authority, there were people online that were like, "Oh, yes, we certainly haven't had stories where Superman spits on the idea of the authority because he doesn't think heroes should be like that. Right. How like, but that's not what, that's not what this is. No, not you know? at all. It, it's, 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 um, it's quite clever in what it's doing. Yeah. I just need to know where it's doing it. Well, why don't you let the story unfold before you freak out about you it? That's what I'm saying. You freaked out too. Now, I didn't freak out, you did. but you I cried. do admit that you I, cried to your secret comic book friends that I'm not even allowed to talk to. And they're like, settle down, Joe. Here's what's look, going on. You weren't. Look, <laughs> it's not my fault. You choose not to engage with people online. Sorry. Yeah, I liked this. The art was tremendous. Uh, time will tell where it all fits, if it even fits at all. Yeah. Um, as its own thing, as Grant Morrison kind of saying goodbye to D.C. after uh, they spent the last 17 years there. Uh, this I enjoyed. I am confused, but I'm still giving it a buy. It. Up in the sky, look, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Moving on to tropical climates, Bermuda, number one from IDW. There's a region in the Atlantic Ocean where planes disappear, ships are lost, and traveling souls go missing, never to be heard from again. And there's an island within this place. Mysterious and uncharted, untouched by time and civilization, where all who are lost end up, human or other. No, it's not the Bermuda Triangle, but the island is called Triangle, and the and a girl named Bermuda lives there. <laughs> it's so John Layman. <laughs> it's very cheeky. 
Choose John Lehman teams with artist Nick Bradshaw, who I am constantly confusing with Chris Burnham and Ryan Stegman. I don't not know because why. of their art style. Yeah. Not because of their art style, but because they all kind of like came up at the same time. And right. so every time one of their name comes up, I'm like, which one is that? Bradshaw has not been around for a while, though, right? He fell Nick off Bradshaw is the guy that draws very similar to Art Adam, Absolutely. which I love. And he's great. He drew Wolverine in the X-Men. Yes. Amongst this other things. This is a Tarzan meets the Savage Land-esque adventure. Uh, you've got a plane carrying the children of a gazillionaire business mogul, Elliot Randolph. It goes down in a lightning storm and young Bobby and his sister, Andy, find themselves stranded on Triangle, where Andy is promptly captured by Murloc slavers. Don't tweet at me, WoW fans. It's just a joke. They are Murlocs, so no question. They are, t- they are totally <laughs> Murlocs. <laughs> uh, Bobby is saved by Bermuda, and he begins to learn the truth of the island, and it seems that his father and his associates may have known about it as well. Ooh. This is a fun, lighthearted tale combining a lot of classic adventure elements like, you know, the land at a time, kids lost on a deserted island, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, given that it is just a four issue series, I do wish that Layman had devoted more time to actually setting up the world as opposed to just having the characters react to it. But for a first issue, being in the same shoes as, you know, the kid on the plane that's experiencing it for the first time, I thought it worked. It all comes totally alive through the art of Nick Bradshaw and colorist Leno Grady. Their work here is stunningly detailed. Um, I, I joke when I say, that Nick Bradshaw draws just like Art Adams. Uh, that is kind of dismissive. Though it's clear that Art Adams is definitely a tremendous influence on his work. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but Nick Bradshaw is a phenomenal talent, and this book just absolutely benefits from it. Uh, the colors by Len O'Grady are beautiful. Triangle looks like a living, breathing island of wonders. The creatures that inhabit it are strange and wonderful. I chose Bermuda number one to review on a whim, knowing nothing about it at all. And I was pleasantly surprised to find a gorgeous swashbuckling, mostly all ages story. There are some, you know, brutal oh, stabbings. Yeah, but there's nothing like real risque, you know. Yeah, oh, you're right. No, there's nothing risque about it. But and the yeah, stabbings I'm are like, it. I thought it was super fun. It's like monsters bleeding weird colored blood and stuff. I mean, uh, no, there's a guy that gets a trident through the chest. Oh, no, that's you get true. To see it coming oh, yeah. through that's from true. his back. I forgot. So this is really a Nick Bradshaw art piece is what it is. The story is fun. It's yeah. nothing fantastic. It is what it is. But God damn, is this book gorgeous. This dude yeah. is stupid talented. And it is a, a four issue mini. So maybe it's better to wait for the trades. You can read it all and see where it goes. I'm giving it a buy it just because I love Layman and I'm really happy to see that he can also write about other things than food so <laughs> this was a, this was a good time you know it's a buy it for me and i feel bad about that we shouldn't have to apologize for miniseries a miniseries can just be a miniseries and that's okay you know yeah it I, is okay i'm I, not the one apologizing for I, it i'm apologizing for it <laughs> finally we come to the book that i've been waiting to read well, all week i guess it's moon Knight number one from marvel this was written by Jed McKay with art by Alessandro Capuccio. Fresh from trying to take over the world for his naughty god, Conchu, Mark Spector is feeling much better and being treated by psychologists and picked by the Avengers. Mark is feeling more confident than ever, so much so he thinks he may not be able to die. And he's opened his midnight mission where victims of the creatures of the night can come and ask for help from the fist of Conchu. But 
he may not be the only servant of his Egyptian benefactor. So, yes, it's a bit silly that the Avengers let Mark just walk away after almost taking over the planet. (laughs) But he's in counseling. And Asgard, I might add. But that's actually the least of my problems with Jason Aaron's current Avengers run. McKay does not shy away from the Age of Conchu storyline, but he also does a great job returning Moon Knight to his job of beating up supernatural baddies that plague in New York by night. The art by Capuccio was clean, it was action-packed, and it was very impressive. Joe Patrick's going to whine about it in a minute here, and I don't get it. I'm not going to whine. I thought Mark's dialogue was a little strange at times, but there may be a good reason for it, as it's revealed by his therapist that something is wrong with his brain. (laughs) There is a great return to Moon Knight's roots for old fans here, but it still pays attention to recent developments as well. I'm giving this a buy it. I am very excited for this new Moon Knight run. Yeah, this is great. Uh, it, it was a lot of fun. I I like Moon Knight, you know, in this context, right? He's just, he's the guy in the neighborhood that goes, that you go to when you got a problem. Yeah. And uh, it's a problem that, you know, most people will think you're probably crazy for having. Like, I think that there is a zombie in my apartment building or whatever. You know, there are vampires in the neighborhood. Right. And uh, yeah, it's it's a, a fun take on the character. Uh, it draws from elements from past uh, runs, uh, specifically, you know, the Mr. Knight persona. And uh, yeah, like you said, the age of Kanchu. I, I did like uh, like the idea. So Kanchu is responsible for what happened in that Avengers arc. Mark Spector is not to blame. Look. I get that, but Mark no, Spector- and I'm saying like that's what I liked, right? Like, <laughs> uh, like the event, the uh, the Avengers, like Thor took Conchu and locked him up on Asgard, and they're like, "You've got to see a therapist, sir." Yeah, well, sure. And, and to Mark, uh, to to Moon Knight, and sent him on his way. That, that's sort of like saying, like, "All right, the nuclear missile that carried the warhead is not at fault here." <laughs> no, well. <laughs> Oh, yeah, if you can, lives, if you can stop the warhead and free the missile, yes. But Kanchu lives in that dude and will be back. I guarantee. Well, but Kanchu doesn't live back. in that dude. No, like Kanchu took him over. He doesn't always live in the dude. Well, he's gonna end up back in his head like he always does. Well, and, yeah, duh. <laughs> come on. But um, yeah, I, I thought this was a ton of fun. I, I love kind of giving the idea of giving Moon Knight more of a supernatural feel, where it's like, yeah, let him fight werewolves, let him fight vampires, which and it, it makes total sense because that's been his mo since the beginning. Yeah, and there's a you mission. Start again. in werewolf by night. By there's, night, there's a mission again. He's not just a guy that's punching people and throwing, you know, right, moon shit. Right batarangs more or less yeah the art uh the art is very well done i i can appreciate the talent behind it just on a personal level it's not really uh my favorite style it's got kind of a um a a manga bent to it a little bit uh it it reminded me a lot of like you know one of your tan brothers like billy tan or philip tan one of those tans i mean and that's just me that's just a me thing it's i but i totally recognize the fact that the art is very good it's very well drawn and uh, it's effective as well. Like, yeah. uh, like this artist, Capuccio, is great with, you know, the shadowy environment and this, like, bizarrely dressed white idiot swooping out of the skies at night. And vampires uh, that are part of a vampire pyramid scheme. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, really it's very like clever. Uh, Jed McKay, uh, Jed McKay is really, like, making a name for himself at Marvel, which is good for that guy. 
And this was a buy it for me. I really liked it. Meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice. Our final review of the week goes to Blue and Gold, number one from DC. It's putting it pretty mildly to say that Blue Beetle and Booster Gold have had a pretty rocky go of it for a lot of years now. So I was very excited to see the classic duo back in action. Hopefully with the baggage of the past several years put behind them. And that's more or less what writer Dan Jurgens and artist Ryan Sook deliver in Blue and Gold number one. Booster has returned to his huckster ways, but he's stepped up his game for the modern day. Live streaming his exploits and begging for cash on whatever passes for Venmo in the DC universe. The Justice League has been kidnapped by a formidable alien force, leaving Booster somehow the only one left to save them. When he's outclassed, he turns to the one man he knows with the tech know-how to crack the alien's defenses, his best friend and former millionaire question mark yeah cord aka the blue beetle i was gonna ask you about that because i wasn't really clear on what happened to the money uh i think that that's part of the story is that like something happened to that dude all right jergens wisely delivers a very familiar and welcome take on these two super buddies but their recent pasts haven't been forgotten either ted is reeling from a string of disappointments and failures there's a reference to his time dealing with uh the suicide squad which i did not read uh but I was at least aware that he was around for it. Booster is desperate for the approval of those he sees as above his station as a hero. Uh, Jurgens does put an interesting spin on their dynamic that I'm not going to spoil here because it's something uh, that he touches on in the dialogue that I thought was very clever. The constant barrage of pop-up social media comments might get old, if it continues and it does get dangerously close to how do you do fellow kids territory. Uh, but it was fun to spot a couple of familiar characters watching Ted and booster in action. Uh, one of them could have gotten up off of his ass and helped, but you know, that's somebody <laughs> else's comic to deal with. Ryan Sook's shadow heavy style. Isn't necessarily a traditional fit for superheroes, but it totally works for a story like this. He's right at home drawing explosive action as well as expressive characters. And his work here gave me fond memories of the early Kevin Maguire, Adam Hughes days of the 1980s Justice League International. Blue and Gold number one is a great start to what I hope will be a return to entertaining mediocrity for two of my favorite characters. It's a buy it. Don't make them successful, guys. It never works. Yeah. Don't even try. No. It's better if they're jokes. Dan Jurgens isn't going to do that. He knows no, better. No, he knows. And like, they're not, you're not going to have Booster and, and Beetle on the Justice League in the next couple months or anything. No. And that's like the great closest, The closest thing they came, the closest DC ever came to saying, look, Booster and Beetle are not only good at their jobs, but they're great heroes is when Blue Beetle single-handedly, uh, figured out that Maxwell Lord was responsible for everything going wrong in the DC universe and then got his head blown off. Yeah. And then Wonder Woman killed uh, him. <laughs> in infinite crisis because yeah. uh, nobody believed him. And then he confronted Maxwell Lord like an idiot and got shot in the face. Uh, and then during uh, the booster gold ongoing series that uh, launched out of 52, where booster gold was actually the time streams greatest hero, but nobody could know about it. Everyone still thought he was an idiot because nobody could know that he was secretly in the background fixing things. It was fun stuff. Good I stuff. totally agree with what you said about Kevin McGuire and Adam Hughes back in the eighties. It looked like Suk definitely played to that style a little bit and it works yeah. really well here. 
I did not have a problem with the pop-up stuff because some of it was really sort of like inside comic fun stuff. Like yeah, yeah. Blue Beetle shows up and he's like, don't worry, I'll help defeat these aliens. And like when the pop-up's like, really? He had to push two buttons and that fixed it. Right, sure. <laughs> like little things like that. that. That was great. This is a lot of fun. This is what you should be doing with these characters. I hope it sells. I hope it's not just the old guys like us. But it was a good time. Yeah, and this, you know what? It's an eight, it's an eight issue run. Yeah. Which so I think what it you should know, be. You don't yeah. need to, we're not going to do this monthly. That's probably not going to work ever again, but we can tell a short story with these characters. That's a lot of fun. And maybe it does mean something in the DCU. We'll see. This starred Naomi was in the justice league. Hippolyta was there. It seemed current. So yeah. It's very current. I'm giving this a bite as well. That's eight comics reviewed, but only one can make it into the THN permanent collection. Joe Patrick, which one of these comics is getting slapped? Uh, I think it's Ninja <laughs> because that book, that was that was my favorite read from this episode was that Ninja comic. And it's weird because I have no affinity for Ninja at all. But just the style that Parker and Polito brought to that character, it yeah. blew me away how well told that story is. And I don't know how long Polito is going to last on the title. I don't know how long the book is supposed to last. But as long as they're on the book, I'm in because they had me from page one. It's, I loved it. Ninja Jack for me as well, because it feels like they're doing something special. And I, I like yeah. a lot of what I read this week. But yeah, that, me too. But that Ninja felt really special. You can find our picks of the week and the episodes review list on our Twitter and Facebook if you want to read along. Also, we want to know what you thought about these comics and anything that you read on our live call in show. THN cover to cover this Saturday on Facebook Live from 11 a.m. to noon Central Time. Thinking about switching to Twitch until such time that Facebook figures out how to get rid of all their anti-vaxxer bullshit. So, <laughs> oh boy. Enough of these new comics. It's time to head to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum to discuss theoretical future comics. Joe Patrick. Tell these nerds, if they're buying one comic next week, what is your must-read pick for Wednesday, 728? My pick for next week is the last book you'll ever read. Number one from Vault Comics, written by Colin Bunn, with art by Leela Lees. It's $3.99. Here's your solicit. Civilization is a lie. Hidden deep in our genes is the truth, and it's slowly crawling its way to the surface. Body horror. Olivia, yikes. <laughs> Olivia Cade knows the truth. And she has become the prophet of the coming collapse. Her book, comma, Sater, is an international bestseller. And it is being blamed for acts of senseless violence and bloodshed all over the world. Just like Harry but, Potter. Mm-hmm. Olivia's own life is in danger from those who have read her work. Determined to conduct a book tour, she hires security professional Connor Wilson to act as her bodyguard. She only has one requirement. He cannot read her work. Kind of cool. Uh, yeah, sounds cool. Uh, but I'll tell you what, I am totally judging this book by the cover because I got a look at the cover and I was like, Wah, it looks that's, good. that's amazing. It's Colin Bunn horror too. And it kind of, it kind of yeah. sounds like, um, a Chuck Palahniuk book, uh, lullaby where like there was thoughts that were dangerous and yeah, you know, it's kind of like mimetic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And those books we reviewed a while back. Um, but yeah, like, uh, it's, uh, the cover has a very, um, 
the the logo has a very like scary stories to tell in the dark vibe to it. And I was like, Oh, that looks fun. Yeah. It's like, what if young, what if young adult fiction was maybe secretly super dangerous? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <You know>? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. This, it sounds like a, a blast. Uh, Cullen Bunn again, like, we, lo- we love his independent horror work, and this sounds like another winner to me. As we all know, young adult fiction is super dangerous and written by the devil. My pick for next week is Gru meets Tarzan. Number one, it's from Dark Horse, written by Mark Evanier with art by Sergio Aragones. The team behind the hit Gru the Wanderer series goes to Comic-Con, finding inspiration not only in their enthusiastic fans, but in their fellow creators, to especially those working on Tarzan comics. That's a really weird sentence. No, I think that the comma threw you off. Okay. Sergio Aragones finds a way to introduce the two characters to each other, and so Tarzan, the Lord of the Jungle, is set on a path that will lead him to Gru, the Master of Cheese Dip. Also, it includes the return of the Referto backup strips, Gru and Tarzan return to Dark Horse, and this exciting crossover. I love Tarzan. He is problematic historically. I get it. I love Gru, who is problematic for different reasons, (laughs) because you either think it's funny or you're a jerk. All right? This is Dark Horse. This is two creators that I love. I'm excited to read this. And it's the kind of thing where it's like, look, if you're in the know, you're going to be excited. You've never yeah, if read, you know, you know. If you've never read Gru before, go check it out. See if it's for you. I get it if it's not. The THN Trade of the Week goes to Bizarro Comics, the deluxe edition hardcover. It's $49.99. It's from DC Comics. It's written and drawn by Various. And here's your solicit. Where else could the world's greatest alternative cartoonists run rampant through the DC universe in utterly unhinged stories? Bizarro, an imperfect duplicate of Superman who does everything backward, tries drawing comics, concocting stories in which Wonder Woman participates in a poetry slam, baby Superman torments his babysitter, and that's just the start. This deluxe edition collects the two anthology titles, Bizarro Comics and Bizarro World, with a cover by the legendary creator of The Simpsons, Matt Groening, and includes stories and art by acclaimed creators including Kyle Baker, Jeff Smith, Ivan Brunetti, Paul Pope, Hunt Emerson, Carol Lay, Roger Langridge, Mark Crilly, Dave Cooper, Eddie Campbell, Tony Millionaire, James Kolchaka, Harvey Pekar, R.I.P. Wow. Yeah. Peter Baggy and many more. That's awesome. It's just Peter Bizar- Bag. You don't say the E. It's just Bag. Peter Bag. All right. Uh, so Bizarro <laughs> Comics came out years ago when Matt and I were first working together yeah. at Krypton Comics. Uh, it was a. It was back during a time where DC. You couldn't swing a dead cat without hitting a delu- uh, a hardcover of something yeah. DC wanted to put out. And um, they came up with Bizarro Comics. And it was exactly what the solicit says. It was independent, weirdo cartoonists totally. doing DC superhero stories. It was great. They did a sequel, Bizarro World. It's notable. Uh, well, not any- it's not notable anymore. But at the time, it was notable because there was a, there was a story called uh, Letitia Lerner, Superman's Babysitter, or Super Baby's Babysitter, uh, that was slated to appear in the Elseworlds 80-page giant. That was also a thing that they did, 80-page giants. And uh, the comics code at the time was like, you can't print this. You can't print this. The baby crawls into a microwave. Oh, that's right. (laughs) And so DC pulped the entire yeah. run. Yeah. Which means uh, if you can find a copy of that comic, 
some of which do still exist. They for a while there, they were fetching a pretty penny. But Bizarro bucks, Comics was the only place you could see that story in print. Kyle Baker, baby. Yeah, it's he very a controversial guy. It's very Treehouse of Horror. They're wonderful books. And now you can get them both in one hardcover. Be sure to pre-order all these comics if you're looking for a quality read. And be sure to tune in next week to hear about our THN book club read for August. With a Disney Plus TV series on the way and a new number one issue this week, it looks like everything is coming up Moon Knight at Marvel. But if you've never read a story with Marvel's knockoff Batman, you may think he's just another rich guy with a butler and a penchant for dressing up to fight crime by night. Well, the comic pushers are here to throw two moonerangs into that theory with some must-read Moon Knight comics. Matt, you are the biggest Mark Spector fan I know, so why don't you start us off? I love Mark Spector Moon Knight. It, it falls in this very special place for me with these 70s and 80s martial arts comics that my an uncle of mine collected and gave me as a kid that ruined me and made me a comic nerd for the rest of my life. So I got to start with a Moon Knight story that I read as a kid. This is Moon Knight Volume 1. It was numbers 22 and 23. This was way back in the 80s. Written by Doug Mensch with art by Bill Sankiewicz. That is quite the Polish team we got rolling here. After unmasking his assailant, as Peter Alroon, Moon Knight takes him along with Marlene and Frenchie to Stephen Grant's cottage in Maine to hide out, but Peter still shares an unwilling mental link with a powered-up Morpheus, so the villain knows exactly where to find them. In the end, Peter's link and his new nightmare powers turn out to be the key to neutralizing Morpheus's own. When he finally regains his own will, he makes the decision to atone for creating Morpheus by sacrificing his own life to cure his patient! This was like the kind of heady, bizarre crap that Mensch got into eventually with Moon Knight. Moon Knight was created by Mensch along with Don Perlin in their Marvel horror series Werewolf by Night back in issue 32 in 1975. When Moon Knight got his own title in 1980, though, Mensch was writing, but it was by no means a supernatural horror title it would become. Even Sienkiewicz, when he started on the series, wasn't leaning into his super weird style until literally this issue, when Morpheus shows back up for this really creepy story. The two creators, yeah, I, I read that he was kind of like forced into a, a more traditional. Definitely, they wanted it. They wanted to see a more superhero-driven Moon Knight, and it just wasn't working because they didn't have any direction for him. This is where Moon Knight really finds his supernatural horror direction. These two creators would go on to basically create the Moon Knight we know today, complete with his disassociative personality disorder. This, I can't say enough about this whole run, but it was specifically this story when Moon Knight got creepy. I love it. <laughs> My first pick for Moon Knight. And, you know, just bear with me because I'll get there. <laughs> It's Amazing Spider-Man 353 through 358. The name of the storyline is Round Robin, the sidekick's revenge. You don't have to apologize if this is like the story that made you like Moon Knight. That's fine. Well, all right, I'll get to it. The creative team is writer Al Milgram, 
And the artist is the aforementioned Mark Bagley, but this was Mark Bagley 30 years ago. So, yeah. you know, it. you know, it good when Mark Bagley was still, you know, driving the ball 300 yards. <laughs> I mean, he was drawing two books at the time. So that guy was firing on all cylinders. Uh, here is a synopsis. In Mark Spector, Moon Knight from 1989, uh, this was issue number four. Spector took Jeff Wilde under his wing and trained him to be his sidekick. Although Wilde called himself Midnight, he often went into action wearing a Moon Knight costume, which came back to haunt them both when the Secret Empire, no relation, captured Midnight in issues 19 through 21. Uh, no relation the uh, secret empire is yet another one of marvel's many evil organizations right. it's not it has nothing to do with the nick spencer crossover no, of the same is, they were a group called secret empire secret empire and right. they actually they may they may have even been a hydra offshoot i forget they accidentally captured moon knight's stunt double they captured moon knight's stunt double, <laughs> captured moon knight's stunt double right <laughs> yeah. his understudy his understudy you fools these are their stunt doubles <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly yeah <laughs> Uh, Spectre believed that Wilde was dead while the secret empire turned him into a deadly cyborg. Surprisingly, Round Robin didn't play out in Moon Knight's ongoing title. Instead, Wilde and the secret empire returned in Amazing Spider-Man 353 in a multi-part storyline that brought Spidey and Moon Knight together with other Marvel heroes for a showdown with the now evil cyborg character. I have a feeling they were trying to Boost some sales on Moon Knight yes. a bit. You are 100% correct. <laughs> yeah. uh, and here's where Joe Patrick comes in. The year was 1991. Young Joe Patrick's love of comics was reaching a fever pitch, driven in part by spending time in front of the comic rack at the Arkansas Walmart where his grandma worked. Can't stop talking about that story. It's so sad. It's so It's sad. great. I love it. I got to read so much crap. At the time, you could still get multi-packs of comics from magazine stands but they had grown from the random three packs we'd get from gas stations oh, yeah. when we were little. Where they put like now, one Monchichi comic in the middle. Yeah, like, right. Exactly. <laughs> now they were whole storylines. This is how I managed to snag the entire run of the infi original infinity gauntlet. And this is where I read my first story that actually featured moon Knight. up until then I'd only seen him on covers or maybe in the background of things. Why this didn't play out in the Moon Knight series that was still going strong, I will never know. That series ran 60 issues. So by the time this came out, they would have been on what, like 25, 26, maybe 30? Maybe this is what saved it. Who knows? Could be. I also didn't care. This run had it all. Spidey, the Punisher, Darkhawk, Nova, Night Thrasher, the Mooncopter, which isn't a fucking helicopter. Thank nope, you very much. It, it is, is an airplane yeah. shaped like a crescent. I think the only reason they didn't call it the Moonwing is because everybody knew that Moon Knight was a Batman yeah, right. ripoff. Yeah, right. And they're like, well, no, we can't do that. Come on. Yeah, right. We, let's call it the Mooncopter. <laughs> right. When you call it the Mooncopter, it makes me think that the crescent part spins around the cockpit like a <laughs> fidget spinner. That'd be cool. It would be cool, although ineffective, but cool. Fly, but man, would that be cool? No, it wouldn't fly at all. <laughs> uh, it's got Frenchie. It's got Thunderball. It's got the Seekers, who are obscure armored villains, best known for one of them having a kid that set himself on fire, imitating the Human Torch in the eighties. <laughs> it's a good reason to go after the Fantastic Four, though. Hell yeah, it is. And even more, it had Mark Bagley at the absolute peak of his abilities. Oh. 
And Moon Knight is also there, I guess, as well. <laughs> is this a good entry point for the character? No, but it was mine. And I still love it to this day. It's the it's like literally, I can't believe this is true, but I had to think hard. It is literally the first time I'd ever read Moon Knight as a as a main player in a comic book story. Right on. I'm gonna jump way forward in Moon Knight history to Moon Knight Volume 8, number six through ten from 2015. This was written by Jeff Lemire. Listen to this art team. Greg Smallwood, Wilfredo Torres. Francesco Francovia and James yeah. Stokoe. I was going to pick this, but you took it from me. Holy Which crap. Is, I mean, good for you. You did it. Meet the many men inside Moon Knight's head as the focus shifts to his various incarnations. Mark Spector broke his body to escape the prison Khonshu built for his mind. But what if he's still trapped? Stephen Grant awoke in New York City, ready to produce Marvel's next box office smash. Is he losing his mind? Or will Moon Knight the movie be a blockbuster? And Jake Lackley is under arrest for murder, with the world calling on him to protect those who travel at night. Mark is losing control. The muddled mind of Moon Knight is reaching its limit. That is actually the uh, solicit for the trade. Yeah, the muddled mind of Moon Knight. Moon Knight's mental... They should have called the series that. Settle down. Moon the muddled mind of Moon Knight, Volume 1. <laughs> Moon Knight's mental issues had long been treated as a handicap for the character. See the Brian Michael Bendis run for one of the worst experiments. I with need his. to revisit that because it can't be as bad as I remember. <laughs> it's bad! But Lemire uses this series and the four amazing artists to examine the four parts of Mark's different personalities and in the end show how they all work together to make him a unique hero and not a crazy person. It is a very well-written story that examines mental health issues rather than demonizing them or using it as a plot point, which they and that's really important. would go to with Moon Knight. Yeah, and no, it, like, that's really important. And for a while there, I'm not going to say it wasn't interesting. I liked like, oh, Moon Knight's crazy. Like, that's kind of cool. But you can't just always have this crazy hero who's always crazy. Otherwise, it's just like. Well, the Punisher should probably shoot him in the head and do us all yeah, a favor. I mean, <laughs> like, look, it, that's the thing, right? It's 2021. It, like, this book didn't come out in 2021, but still. Using mental health as a punchline is no longer a, a thing we should be doing. But it wasn't even a punchline. It, like, but you know what I mean, using right? Using a punchline, I agree. But so using for this book, as, for a, this as something book to, dangerous, that's even right. worse, you know? Right. And so, right, exactly, exactly. Like, to demonize, to demonize the mentally ill, it's, right. it's, it's, not, it's not good. I, I do apologize for making a muddled mind of Moon Knight joke. Yeah, that's why I, I was thought like, it was, I, it was a thought of, I thought it was a funny <laughs> turn of phrase. But uh, but like for this book to like very thoughtfully for this run to very thoughtfully examine it and use it uh, as a strength uh, for the character. Uh, and that our team, holy buckets. Unreal. Wowie zowie. But Lemire built on something that Warren Ellis kind of started and yes. explained it laid it out and explained it. This is why Moon Knight is acting this way. This is why he does what he does. It's because each one of these personalities works to do a job that makes him essentially four heroes in one, which is so cool. So yeah. cool. It's, it's way better than like sometimes he has claws because he thinks he's Wolverine. Right. My last pick for Moon Knight goes to Vengeance of the Moon Knight Volume 1. The creative team was writer Greg Hurwitz with art by Jerome Opeña. Here's your solicit for that book. Moon Knight is back in the Big Apple and looking to pick a fight with the man who chased him out of town in the first place, Norman Osborn. 
Freed of his demons and armed with an arsenal of incredible new weapons, Moon Knight is finally the hero he always aspired to be. Taking out criminals with massive flair and throwing down the gauntlet to his old nemesis. Is Osborne ready for round two? This uh, collects, this volume one collects Vengeance of the Moon Knight one through six. It was a short series. I think it only lasted like 10 or 12 issues. Yeah, I think so. So this came uh, during the Dark Reign era which followed Secret Invasion, where uh, Norman Osborn got lucky and assassinated the Skrull Empress, making him a hero in the eyes of the world. Yeah. And so what did they do? <laughs> they put him in charge of national security. Sure. That's just exactly that's how. Yeah. Oh. It's not like he had you, any serious mental issues that could right. cause you problems. Know, it's <laughs> like I accidentally, I accidentally ran over, you know, Vladimir Putin with my car. Now something put me also in charge had, of Russia. And like, I would like to revisit Dark Rain some point, possibly for Cosmic Longbox, because I have these really fond memories of things. But oh no, I liked a lot of it. Yeah, I correct me if I'm wrong. Something had happened where nobody knew that Norman Osborn was the Green Goblin at that point. So okay, um, and maybe we should save this for a Joe story time if it's going to be more than thirty seconds. How about it won't yes? be more? It won't be more than I can. I can do it in less than thirty seconds. Okay. How about a yes or a no? <laughs> uh, I can do it in less than thirty seconds. Okay. Here we go. Uh, in the series, The Pulse, which was kind of the main Marvel follow-up to Alias, uh, it was the non-Max version of Jessica Jones in a solo title. She worked for the Daily Bugle. Uh, the first storyline of that series was Norman Osborn getting added as a maniac supervillain, the Green Goblin. He goes to prison. Things happen. Uh, lawyers are involved. Basically, he sues the Daily Bugle into oblivion and like 25 it's seconds. All, it's all covered up. Okay, so they didn't know he was Peter. So nobody. So in a nutshell, no, they it was it was like it went from being like known to being alleged. Got it. Right. And then it wasn't until Siege where he paints his face like the Green Goblin and then invades Asgard that people were like, oh, shit. I did really like this series because I remember Moon Knight was like one of the few people that was like, I'm going to get that guy. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. I'm, gonna, I'm, so, I'm not going to get him. I'm going to beat the hell out of that guy. <laughs> getting into my getting into my feelings. Uh, by this point, I was still mostly familiar with Moon Knight through guest appearances uh, outside of that disastrous run by Charlie Houston and David Finch that Ugh. happened uh, two years prior, Ugh. but I had been following dark rain that plus the presence of rising star Jerome Opeña. Man, this was pre uncanny X-Force Jerome Opeña. It sucked me right in. It only lasted about a year, but when I think about moon Knight, I still think about Opeña's version staring down the sentry. Like he don't even give a care. Yeah. The sentry shows up at the end of issue one. Like, are you supposed to be here? And Muna is just like, fuck you. <laughs> and like, like that's the intro of this series is that Mark Spector's back in town. He's mad as hell. And Norman Osborn is not going to get away with this bullshit for oh, one single second so longer. So good. Uh, it's at the very least, it's beautiful. It's yeah. beautiful. Jerome Pena. Yeah, it's worth it if there were no word bubbles. It's Jerome Pena. Just pick this up. These are just a few Moon Knight stories that we happen to love. We want to talk about your Moon Knight feelings. Hit us up on Cover to Cover this weekend. There's got to be Moon Knight stories, Moon Knight appearances you're excited for. Yeah. And, uh, man, I can't wait for the Disney Plus show. I'm so goddamn excited. <laughs> Excelsior. Oh. 
That is it for THN 628. And next week, the Cosmic Long Box returns to force us. And I want to emphasize the word force. Look, to review classic comics written by celebrity creators. Now, these are not celebrity comic creators. These are creators who decided, you know what? I'm going to take a little break from writing movie scripts or acting in uh, movies or rapping and write a comic book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not like, it's it's not like, oh no, Belushi, that samurai's for real. Like, no, no, no this no. is like if Jim Belushi wrote a samurai delicatessen comic. I guess I was talking about like, I, not even like celebrity writers. This is not Chris Claremont decided to write this. No, no. This is like what happens when Jada Pinkett Smith decides she's going to write a comic book. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what I mean. We're not, we're, we're not talking about uh, celebrities that have appeared. We're talking about celebrities that have contributed. Nothing against Jada, except I just don't want her writing metal music or comic books because both suck pretty bad. So. She writes metal music? Oh, you never heard Wicked Wisdom? That was, yeah, it was her metal band. It sucked. If you want to rap about this week's episode or any of the weekly nerdy news that we are following, which you can follow that on our Facebook, hit us up on our live call-in show. We talk about it all the time because we want you to play along. It's called THN, cover to cover. It happens every Saturday at 11 Central Time. It's hosted on our Facebook page. But you don't just have to be there live. Maybe you got shit going on Saturday mornings. Call us. Leave us a message. 402-819-4894. Send us an MP3 to TwoHeadedNerd at gmail.com. We will play it on the stupid show. And on said show, we like to talk about the question of the week. That's right, Matt. This week's question comes from Frank Cirillo, courtesy of the THN Forums. Frank writes, quote, I have a friend who has a controversial opinion. He feels that Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns is actually bad. Not the story, but the impact that it had on comics. Most comics post Dark Knight Returns became dark, gritty, and unfriendly for kids. So the question for the nerds is, what comics had a similar sweeping effect on the comic book industry for good or for bad? Bonus question, if you if you fancy, 35 years later, what do you think about the Dark Knight Returns? Love it. Uh, please do. Keep your question of the week suggestions coming our way. We need them. And uh, quite frankly, guys, we're not that creative. I don't know if you've noticed, but all of our good ideas come from you. It's not creative. We're very creative. We're just lazy. No, that's the, no. That's the problem. It's, so. it's both. If you're it's new both. to this show and you would rather the Moon Knight cuts your face off, then you have to listen to any more, I assure you. It's only because you haven't heard enough. The good news is you can hear the entire run of THN in our digital long box archive at TwoHeadedNerd.com. But hosting that many episodes, it ain't cheap. We want to thank patrons like our Japanese correspondent, Jim Heavey. He doesn't live in Japan. He's just it's not big, important. He's just a big fan. <laughs> they don't need to know that. <laughs> Before we go, our shout out goes to Biz Markey. Thanks to Revolver Magazine announcing his death two weeks ago, Matt got to mourn the death of one of his favorite and vastly underappreciated rappers, not once but twice in one month. My heart couldn't take it, okay? It happened <laughs> twice. I had to watch him die two times. Uh, word to you, Biz, and check your damn facts revolver. Until next time, true believers, remember- you couldn't, make a, you couldn't make a joke about how he was more than just a friend? No, I'm not gonna do that because he did so much more than that and everybody only knows that one fucking song, Joe Patrick. The man is dead. Show some respect. 
All right? Until next time, true believers, remember to pre-order your comics or your retailer might just tell everybody you died two weeks before you did. This is the Two-Headed Nerd signing off. Peace.